Earth is Climate Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on Earth and came up with a hypothesis we wanted to test. If you believe in climate change, the only way we'll get past these massive environmental problems is if for profit companies get involved. In other words, we've spent hundreds of years getting into this mess. We'll need to spend billions, maybe trillions, getting out of it. Therefore, companies need to make money in order for someone to spend it. Then we asked, can we speak with a dozen or so companies in different verticals of climate tech who are making it part of their mission to be climate conscious and making big bucks while doing it? Well, we did just that. Thus, Climate Mayhem was born. So follow Jacob Kubica and I along as we listen to some incredible stories to test this hypothesis. Oh, and are you an entrepreneur about to get into this space? You will definitely learn something from these extremely impressive founders and operators of just how possible it is to take on a seemingly impossible task. Mayhem on, Jacob. Mayhem on, Ty. Austin Zacker is lead data scientist at EVGO, an MIT master's graduate in business analytics, and a data whiz with a sharp wit. Austin wanted to bring his data crunching superpowers somewhere trying to do good by the earth. So he left the insurance tech industry. He went to EVGO. Speaking of, EVGO is trying to solve a very real problem, aren't they, Ty? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest questions people have about electric vehicles is the range. How far am I going to get? Is there going to be a charger there? How long will it take? All of these things. Well, this is a huge data problem. And with data scientists, mine, like Austin has, Looking at this, I think it's a really fun conversation to explore. And I think we talk a little bit about, do you actually need to worry about that in America today? So find out, stick with us, and listen to the episode. What else should people be excited about in today's episode? Lots of things, Ty. For example, did you know charging stations to build one is a very involved process? These companies have to hit it within budget. They build hundreds of these, and they got to do it really fast. Or that there are a few different charging plugs to charge your EV. So today, each car maker, think of GM, Ford, uses a different charging plug. So you as an EV owner have to carry these adapters if you're on a road trip and you're driving with your EV. Kind of a pain in the ass, you know? Yeah, huge problem. So join the conversation with us and Austin Zacker today and Mayhem on. Mayhem on. Austin, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you. We've you're the second guest we've had in the EV industry. You come from a unique angle because it's around a network of chargers that's like not home chargers. So I think this would be a really fun conversation. I thought we'd start off with something around. Uh, is it called standard query language? Is that right? Uh, structured query language. Structured yeah, query very language. Close, though. Okay. So structured query language, SQL, SQL is the shorthand for it. Why should everyone learn SQL? 
Yeah, I think SQL is a phenomenal language for a lot of reasons. The first thing is very accessible, right? Like it's very easy to learn as a first language. Uh, people who aren't familiar with coding, I think cold feet at the thought of uh, working on something like that. But SQL has like maybe two dozen keywords that you need to remember and really only like 10. And then you're basically fluent in the language and it's just understanding your company's data if you want to be able to access and query and manipulate your organization's data in a very effective way. As a data scientist, even, especially as a data analyst, like 90% of what you do can probably be done in SQL. So I think nice. people would be surprised to find at how self-sufficient they can become if they just spent like three hours self-studying SQL online for free and then, you know, applying it to, you know, what data probably already exists at their company. Yeah. I second a lot of those things. I, I work at a company that they pride themselves on being technologists. Everyone's pretty technical. It's a SaaS. But the amount of people that know SQL is pretty pretty low. But for when people do know it, it's like everyone is pretty impressed with them. Like it's like their street cred at the company goes like two or three X. Well, on one hand, I think it's silly. On the other hand, I'm like, it makes sense because then you understand the underlying. It's almost like you understand the subway system, right? Like how underneath the entire city, how it's all connected, how you can actually get from that corner of the city to that corner of the city, right? Totally. Yeah, it really unlocks a lot of doors. And the barrier to entry, especially if you already know something like Excel, yeah. like you're used to working with tables, the barrier to entry is so low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's one thing you do have to call out those. What is it querying real quick, just so that we have a little better picture of the subway and where it's going from? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, the whole point of SQL is that it's a language developed to talk to databases. So if you have, you know, your company has quote unquote a warehouse, it's a very frequently used term. You have a warehouse or a data lake house or something like that. You have a place where data tables are stored together. You have a big group of tables together. A query is just a way of you providing instructions to your data warehouse that you want certain things in a certain way, and then you get that data back. Perfect. Great. That's super helpful. Because a lot of every, people know... Every tech company has has data, data warehouses. Right. And a lot of people know VLOOKUP, the function of VLOOKUP in Excel. And so when someone's like, why should I learn SQL? I say, well, you know how you do VLOOKUP and you have like three different spreadsheets that you're, that you're trying to connect and tabs? I'm like... You could just do that all in like an instance. And they're like, oh, I get it. I'm like, yeah, you can work a lot faster. It really is effectiveness over efficiency, right? Yeah, but it's also efficiency, right? Because like hmm. Excel is limited to uh, just over a million rows, whereas, you know, SQL, a million rows is is, is trivial for most data warehouses. Oh, like, really? Okay. You could instantly join, you know, hundreds of times that easily. And then that would that would essentially be your like, you know, VLOOKUP. And also like not all data is available in that Excel format, right? Because that implies that somebody has already downloaded it and now it's static. Whereas a, whatever the most recent, most accurate, most up-to-date data is. So yeah, it is It is an efficiency. It is a like effectiveness as well. I think it's both. I just think SQL is a great language. <laughs> nice. And how is it different than Python? If, if someone asked, like if someone was a total rookie in this. Yeah, that's a good question too, because, you know, both, especially today, both are very popular for like data analysis, right? But Python is a 
full, like, proper programming language. SQL's not a programming language. Like, you couldn't okay. write an app in SQL, right? But Python is what you would call uh, an OOP, an object-oriented programming language, mm -hmm. where most, maybe a bit in the weeds, but, like, most things are a class, and classes have attributes, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what I said originally about it is for programming rather than just querying is, is the main distinction. Okay. Yeah, because when you're querying, you're, you could think of, you're looking at a table, you're like, you're going down a row, you're going down a column, you're getting an answer, you're getting some data in a more filtered way. So that makes sense. Awesome. What got you interested in climate sustainability space? I, I feel like it's something that has been your interest for, for longer than just the past year or two. Is that right? Uh, definitely. Yeah. So I wondered if I wanted to go into environmental economics when I was an undergrad, but for some reason it was just a less rigorous version of the economics major, which didn't really appeal to me. So I stuck with uh, economics and just took some environmental science classes. Uh, I actually met my, it was a good call. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, I have always been, I don't know what you know, started the interest, you know, I grew up kind of in the woods, so I spent a lot of time outdoors. So maybe that kind of fostered a love of, of the natural world, but I've always been sort of environmentally inclined. And then I didn't really get to live that in my day to day, certainly not my occupation until I started at EVgo. And it's not for a lack of looking, it was mm -hmm. really just what was and wasn't available to me uh, at the time. But yeah, in grad school, I got to work on some cool research projects on environmental science uh, that maybe we can talk about at the end if we have time. But EVgo so is really my first full-time job working in the sustainability industry. And you said you spent a lot of time in the woods down in California. You grew up in Berkeley, San Francisco. Is that right? So I grew up in Tahoe, actually. Okay. The, yeah, right. up in the mountains. And my house like backed uh, up to like National Forest Service land. So if I just wow. walked west from my backyard i i don't think i would hit another road until i reached like the outskirts of sacramento like it was that much wilderness it was awesome damn damn okay wow cool and were your parents nature lovers too my dad was he was actually one of the like original like big wall climbers in yosemite valley in the 1980s wow. no way yeah so he's he has a couple routes that uh, hmm. he has like first descents on that really uh, yeah pretty cool pretty cool legacy I got into climbing nice. but I was never as good as he was awesome that have you you seen Don Wall I have Can, yeah that story's pretty Tommy Caldwell's pretty crazy yeah his whole life is pretty nuts it, it is yeah kind of like out of a I don't know fiction novel Ty have you seen that no I haven't so. I don't want to ruin too many parts of it, but there's, I'll tell you one of the two things that happen in it that are just absolutely crazy. So one is, oh, this is, this is probably the most interesting one. So Tommy became this rock climbing prodigy at like 16 or 17 years old. And then very quickly he met this girl who he ended up falling in love with and they got married, who also was a climbing prodigy. So they're both like 17, 18 years old. And he starts climbing around the world. And one of the places he goes climbing is, I think it was Afghanistan or Pakistan. And while they're out there, there happened to be some sort of guerrilla warfare going on, like uh, with local terrorists. And the place that they were at in this remote mountainous country, and I'm getting 
kidnapped, like becoming hostages oh, to these, yeah, to these terrorists. And then they're walking through the, like through these trails trying to, like everyone gets lost, I guess. Like this, the terrorist group gets lost. They don't know how to get back. So they split up and the single, <laughs> I just keep calling the, the single terrorist, the single guy that they're following, he has a gun, but it's just them two and him. And remember he's 18 years old. So they're walking along the ridge of this cliff. And of course they're really skilled at climbing on on something that could be potentially dangerous and he he looks at his girlfriend and he's like i think this is our moment to get out of this and she reads from his eyes that he's going to push him off the side of the cliff and he gets this confirmation from her that it's she's like yeah you have my blessing i won't like hate you for doing this and then he just turns around and like just pushes him and the guy like tumbles gone like totally he's dead Wow. And and they that they escaped like they survived because of because that happened. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wild story. <laughs> wild story. Yeah. And then other story is that Tommy loses one of his fingers in the middle of his climbing career and he adapts his climbing style to use his uh, his a different finger to still become like the strongest climber ever. It's phenomenal. It's like a rocky story. Very cool. All right. Anyway. That tangent aside, Austin, so you've been thinking about sustainability, climate space for a while. You appreciate nature. When did you start thinking about the issues around the climate, like especially from a data science perspective? Did you see anything based on like things you saw in data or research you had done that allowed you to care or see things before maybe others did? Hmm, That's a good question. So EVO is not the first uh, like data science role in the climate space that I applied to, though it is the first one that I uh, thought was a good match. I don't know how far I want to go down this road, but I, I applied for this uh, role that I thought was really interesting. This was my first like exposure to like, wow, like I could really use data science to make a difference in in climate. Mm. And uh, that was at that was at a company called Climate Corp, which is a subsidiary of uh, of Bear Monsanto. And I was really interested in that that job because I thought it would be like really using data science to to sort of reduce agricultural waste and increase efficiency. And agriculture, like food development, is such a huge uh, contributor to emissions. Obviously, you have the whole thing like meat versus vegetables, but even just like the way uh, vegetables or cereal crops are grown is a is a huge contributor because like all uh, fertilizers come from petrochemicals and all, you know, insecticides are basically mm-hmm. derived from petrochemicals. And then, you know, all the tractors run in petrochemicals, you have to ship them, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So like, it, you really want to be efficient. But I just didn't get the, I didn't get the vibe that this, this uh, role was really going to be contributing positively. And, you know, you got to kind of make your, your own sort of moral judgment calls when you are getting in bed with companies like Bear Monsanto on whether your specific role is going to be doing more harm than good. But absolutely. I think I erred on the side of caution, just decided I would find something that is less likely to be twisted into uh, harming another person. <laughs> and Bear Monsanto, they're the they're the creators of like Roundup and fertilizer yeah, like chemical fertilizer. Say, Roundup ready. Roundup ready. Roundup right. ready. And that's used in a lot of agriculture farms, right? Even still today. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they just okay. lost a pretty big lawsuit uh, over glyphosate. I don't know if that's going to mean that they start discontinuing it or not. I guess I haven't looked the last time I was at a Lowe's or Home Depot. And for the audience, what exactly is glyphosate? 
Glyphosate is just the it is just the chemical name for Roundup. Is it? They're the same. Oh, got thing. it. It's just Roundup. Okay. Okay. Got it. Excellent. So, so yeah, you- I guess. Sorry, I guess that was a bit of a tangent. Uh, just, just that to say, like, I, I think I try to view environmental issues through a statistical lens, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. that data science itself has super colored my relationship with with sustainability or, or thinking about climate problems. Like, I try to be bucket smart and not like drop smart, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. focusing yeah. your your efforts where they're going to have the largest impact. I don't really know that saying. What's that saying mean? Uh, so I, I don't remember where I heard it, but basically it was in response to California past, they, you know, California is in and out of droughts all the time. They're probably in one right now, but California had passed a law or a bill essentially saying that restaurants should not put out tap water for their customers unless they ask for it. And the thought was that it'll reduce you know, wasted water. Mm. And then, you know, somebody was writing uh, sort of a more statistically minded perspective on why that whole idea, like, oh, we're doing something about the drought. But that is really a drop in the bucket when it comes to California's water usage. And that that's very much being drop smart, but bucket stupid. And I, I, I strive to be the opposite where, you know, if it's a drop, like, don't don't waste your time. But like, if we're talking about buckets of water, then maybe we should try to focus our efforts where they're going to be most effective. Ty and I were doing some research earlier today and it was around it was called like the ev charger problem and it was talking about how it's not about the power of the chargers i guess tldr was not about the power of the chargers but it's about the amount of chargers that are placed in the level of convenience that's going on there and, and it had its one little factoid which was how fast it charges in the first 20 minutes is a car is significantly faster than it does the last uh sorry the first 20 percent of the battery is much faster 80%, than first 80%, I think. it charges 80% of the battery in the first 20 minutes, like very fast than it does the last 20 minutes it would take to charge the last 20%, something like that. I feel like there's a little bit of like a data science element going on there of, if you didn't know that analysis, then everyone would just assume that it's, unless you're talking to a scientist, that it's just constant. It's the same throughout the whole thing. There isn't actually like a curve to that graph. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And it, it really comes down to the fact that batteries are are not software products. Like they're they're chemical devices. Right. And, you know, you're you're drawing up and drawing down these lithium ions. So it really is like it's not like a it's not like a scam that the industry is trying to pull over. Uh, you know, yeah, their drivers. It, it's really about battery preservation that they they do have to ramp down the charging speed when batteries get to that that state of charge. It can be frustrating for drivers who don't realize that that is uh, something that they should expect every time they plug in, though. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of chargers, what 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 is the abbreviated story of how EVgo was started? Oh, by the way, Austin, before you answer that question, do you want to share that disclaimer that you mentioned? Yeah, I think you just cut out a bit, but I I think I know what you were going to say is that yeah, just before I get into too much EVgo stuff, I just want to make a quick disclaimer that you know. Yes, I work at EVgo, but obviously I won't be disclosing any material non-public information to EVgo, the industry, its competitors, etc. All opinions that I share on the remainder of this podcast are my own and not necessarily representative of EVgo as a company, its investors, its employees. Yeah, I'm uh, just here as uh, Austin Zacker, somebody who is a data scientist, happens to work in the sustainability space. That said, I will uh, go into a bit of EVgo's very interesting story, and this is all completely available 
publicly freely on on google if you just start cool. googling everything i say especially if you want more details i think it is an interesting story but at a high level before i before i get into it i i think that it's a very interesting story for the reason that it serves as an amazing testament to what can and i think should happen when a corporation breaks the rules and the courts and policymakers get involved in designing financial retribution to make things right instead of just issuing, you know, what's essentially a speeding ticket that made their crime still worth it at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, that, that said, EDGO you, you, was caught me. I basically hear. started in 2010. Yeah, that, that's my hook. That's my hook to make the story sound interesting, <laughs> is that there's a moral at the end. EVGO basically started in 2010 in NRG, which uh, if you don't know what NRG is, at the time they were a wholesale power generation company. Uh, nowadays, they do both energy generation and and retail electricity sales. But EVGO started in 2010 as a clean energy initiative within NRG, and that was their original parent company. Then in 2012, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission settled this uh, this old, not super old, but pretty old lawsuit dating back to the like Enron versus Dynegy days that alleged that this company Dynegy had deliberately manipulated the California energy market. I remember that. Yeah, it was a big deal in California in the in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh this this is all like in the wake of these are some of the, the these are some of the consequences of of doing that. Uh but basically like after that Dynegy sold its California subsidiary of gas plants to NRG which included with that sale a legal obligation to spend $100 million to install 200 public fast charging EV stations throughout the state of California. So that is a that is a huge like jumpstart for this, you know, little initiative EVGO inside of NRG. And then that that gets further funding from another like big and famous scandal, the 2015 Volkswagen Dieselgate emission scandal. More money still was uh, eventually awarded to electric charging networks to the tune of about five million in California alone. But some states are have yet to actually um, hand out their funding that was like set aside by the Dieselgate scandal. Dieselgate at all? I feel like people know that story fairly well. <laughs> yeah, I guess the the abbreviated version of the VW diesel scandal was that they were they said that they were creating vehicles they're marketing vehicles that were environmentally friendly or like high miles per gallon and they were they used diesel as the fuel and up being that they were actually significantly worse for the environment even if they used diesel wasn't that it yeah that and they had designed their vehicles all their tdi vehicles so like all turbo direct injection like diesel vehicles that volkswagen was selling and this is this is over 10 million vehicles and over half a million in the united states alone they had designed them deliberately to cheat emissions testing, specifically around uh, nitrogen oxides. So oh, the wow. car would know when it was being tested and it would run very lean, like to trick, uh, you know, emissions wow. testing and regulators into thinking that the car was 40 tons on various nitro, uh, nitrogen oxides, mainly nitrogen dioxide and nitrogen monoxide, uh, which, you know, cause things like acid rain, et cetera, basically cheating, making it seem like they were a lot cleaner than they were. And then they, they did that for like six years or something like that, six model years and, you know, tens of millions or not 
depends, but 10 million cars on the road with this problem. Wow. They eventually wow. got caught by the US EPA and slapped with, you know, huge fines all around the world. But, you know, part of that was basically like, because you have cheated the world on your emissions testing, we need to, we need you to set aside money for electric vehicle charging wow. stations, essentially. Yeah. So that, that pretty much brings us to modern EVgo times. In 2016, NRG sold EVgo to um, a sustainable energy investment firm called uh, Vision, Ri- Vision Ridge Partners. It's a Colorado-based firm. And then in December of 2019, LS Power, another company, agreed to buy EVgo from Vision Ridge. And then in uh, early 2021, EVgo announced its plan to go public by a SPAC merger. And then in July of of last year, EVgo was finally listed on the NASDAQ. So that's pretty much their wow. journey from inception to, to IPO. Well, I guess not technically IPO, but to public. Public, yeah. Yeah, very good. And there have been a couple different charger companies, uh, public network charger companies, including you mentioned uh, Electrify America. And then Tesla has a private one, right? That's It's not, it's not public. I've also noticed there have been a ton of charging companies station companies have been started including is it called artemo or a chatamo there's like there's semiconnect there's charge point and i guess leading all of the question where's the where's the ev charging industry now chatamo you mentioned is uh, is actually a standard is like a connection standard there's basically two dominant plug types in the industry right now it's chatamo and uh, CCS, which also goes by SAE compliant. These are like the two main ones. And then Tesla has its own proprietary one, but uh, you can adapt it to work on on Chatamo. So okay. The world is definitely moving towards hopefully just Chatamo as the standard, but Chatamo CCS are the are the two very popular ones. But yeah, the other companies that you mentioned, so there are a lot in this space. There's at least like 10 players with any sort of significant size. I think EVgo's network niche or market niche is that it's very much focused on public fast charging, also very heavily dependent on the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal because it was spun out as a subsidiary of, of VW, I believe. But yeah, I think the industry is really headed... It, it's just maturing. So I think that we're going to see more fast chargers in public, for sure. I think we're going to see more of the fast chargers being higher kilowatts kilowatt hours or kilowatts i guess and i think vehicles are going to continue to be manufactured with the ability to take higher kilowatt hours or well both kilowatt hours and kilowatts uh sorry i keep making this distinction like kilowatts is like the amount of flow it's, it's, right it's a, there's a difference yeah right kilowatt hours is the amount of like actual power like you could measure in joules yeah yeah and so you're saying they're trying to manufacture cars more towards having both, more, being able to handle more flow and have more storage, right? Yeah, exactly. And then in the meantime, like we're definitely going to see more home charging as well. Like that's just always going to be the cheapest option for consumers because you're just paying your own retail electricity rate, like the same that you would pay if you turn on the lights. So I think both are going to move in tandem and both are very important for the the maturation of the EV industry as a whole. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, like Jacob kind of said at the top of the the show, that we, we've chatted with someone in this kind of home charging space. But I think for the average consumer buying a car, 
because we don't fill up our cars at home, that's not a normal way that we think, you know, people think about going to the gas station. And if I'm going to buy an electric car, going to the charging station, right? So it sounds like, obviously, that's the space EVgo and these other companies work in. And that seems to be the either reticence or, or hesitancy of people to get into this space and is the infrastructure, right? Like I can buy a cool Tesla, but even Tesla, they're trying to like push this idea that you have these special chargers, uh, et cetera, but they're kind of walling off their garden. So it seems like these other players are trying to provide a lot more access to the industry or to, to the average consumer to buy a car, make it more realistic for them to uh, drive down the road. Is that right? I mean, is that kind of the, yeah. the thing? We call it uh, range anxiety. Like, oh, like, do I really want to take my car on this road trip? Like, what if I can't find a fast, like, charger on the way? Will I be stranded? Like, you can always find a gas station, but can you always find a EV charging station? Especially in right, right. areas. Like, the answer is no in some areas, for sure, still today. But this is a problem that the Biden administration is, you know, to their credit, is very adamant about solving as quickly as possible. Like they're, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this more later, but they're, they've set aside quite a lot of money to the maturation of, of public charging networks and trying to make it, you know, as ubiquitous as possible so that people feel confident being able to drive, you know, across the country, even in an EV, yeah. the way you would in a gas powered vehicle. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, and yeah, we I do want to dig into this idea of government funding versus private companies tackling this problem of, of access. But another really interesting story, we talked about this in another episode, but just recently here in Seattle, there's a, a tech blog called GeekWire, and they just did an article about a local entrepreneur, a lo local startup guy that basically um, did a trip with his son a couple weeks down to California, all in their EV. They had a Mo Mustang Mach 3, I think, was the vehicle. That's so it was a universal there. universal plug, but not a Tesla, right? Not a Tesla with the access to these superchargers. But it went all the way down to L.A. They were doing some, they were checking out some uh, baseball stadiums, I believe. The interesting thing was the gentleman mapped out his route and knew where the charging stations were and had plenty of charging in between. But one of the things that I think that was interesting that came up about the infrastructure differently than how people, I think, think about it was the challenge he had or challenges he had when actually going to plug in and charge. He talks about, you know, having to download, I think, eight different apps. Sometimes the car connected, sometimes it didn't, sometimes his payment process. So then he has to reach out. A, you know, two hour stop ended up being four and five to the point where, you know, a one and a half hour trip normally in a gas vehicle took, he planned a little extra and it took him three days to go from Southern California back up to Seattle. So when you guys are thinking about infrastructure, there's not just the having the charging station there, but actually having the service and the support and, and all of that. How have you been thinking about that? What, what does that make you think about as you've been working in this industry a bit? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a problem. Like, it's brought up a lot. Like, it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of like when you're, you both live in Seattle, right? So, like, you've, you've yeah. seen all these, like, Lime scooters and stuff. But yeah. There's also, yeah. like, Link, and there's Evo, yeah. and there's Bird, and Absolutely. there's, like, four. So, you have to have, like, all these apps if you want to be able to use all these scooters. And right now, the EV charging industry is kind of in the same place where there's not a singular app where you can use 
you know, EVgo charging station as well as competitors. I think it would be more convenient for consumers. I don't know if the if the if that's actually going to get developed. Um, but to your other point that you know things sometimes just like the connection doesn't work, like the handoff doesn't go well, like something fails in the software. So I, I mean, I definitely think that you know the industry is in a period of of infancy in some areas and a little bit more mature in others. And I think software is is hopefully one of those ones that we're going to see some rapid improvement in the coming months. Uh, And I think years would hopefully be too conservative. I think that it's a huge problem that a lot of companies are really focusing on right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that things will get better quickly, but I don't own an EV, so <laughs> yeah. I guess I won't know firsthand. <laughs> That's an interesting. You're in the industry, but don't own one yet. What What is your reasoning right now? I don't own a car. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So you just went the uh, full, the thing, like, yeah. no, okay. That's all, even better. Like, uh, yeah. It's the best. It's the yeah, cheapest it's public- <laughs> I mean, like a 15-year-old Acura MDX with like 200 and some odd thousand miles right. on it that she uh, was... Uh, you know, gifted as a graduation present from college. And we don't really plan on getting rid of it anytime soon, just because the economics don't really make sense to, you know, sell a car, buy yeah. a car, et cetera. We drive it so infrequently that I, I can't justify getting an EV right now. But I would like to own one for my next car whenever that time comes around. So, yeah, definitely believe in going all electric eventually, right? Or at some point. Um, yeah. And I think that's where a lot of people are, but we're still trying to, I feel like sometimes we're trying to fit this electric vehicle into the same paradigm as gas vehicles. And I, I think there's some innovation happening with, I can go up and charge my my car myself with an app, you know, it's really cool technology. But I think there's this other, this other interesting connection I keep trying to go back to. Every gas station has an attendant, right? They have a little, most of them have a store, even if you can go up and pump your own gas, right? Right. There are people there back to this kind of like the services part of the industry. Would you ever see like the, you know, the EV industry going that route where there is potentially services wrapped around these charging stations? Maybe. I mean, I do think it's inevitable, at least in, uh, in states like California, Washington, Oregon, that electric vehicle charging stations will probably in the next 20 years, completely replace, maybe not completely, but very largely replace gas stations. So I I think it's very likely that we'll see convenience stores wrapped around EV charging stations as well. Interesting. That stated that they would not allow new vehicle uh, sales after 2035 to be internal combustion engines. They have to be alternative fuel only. And EV is obviously the most popular right now. Right, right. So if the rest of the country follows suit, that's a that's a very fast adoption curve. I don't very think the rest of the country will curve. follow suit, but I think it is a pretty strong market indicator. So that's a really interesting idea. So blowing that out and with your data mm-hmm. science mindset, you know, how many EV chart like where are we kind of at infrastructure wise to meet that need? How many EV chargers are needed in the US for this type of convenience, do you estimate? I think over 100,000, because there's 150,000-ish gas stations in the United States. Okay. And if every vehicle is replaced with an EV, um, granted, more more like refueling, quote-unquote, will be done at home. So that lessens the need to some extent. But 
even with like a 350 kilowatt machine, and that's a big piece of kit. Like there's not that many out there right now. You're going to be sitting at the station to get from zero to 80% for at least like 15 or 20 minutes, right? So it's going to take longer than a gas pump takes to fill up your car. So that would imply that there would need to be more. So those two forces kind of working in opposite directions, I yeah. still think north of 100,000. And there's yeah, probably maybe a few thousand out there right now. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and yeah. if you if you cap like this, like if you only want to look at things that are like 50 kW or higher, even fewer than that, there's just really not really. I I would that's just not fast enough. Unless I'm going to be like you know, unless I'm at a hotel or something and I'm charging it overnight, or I'm at a movie theater and I'm just trying to get another you know 100 miles of range or something. 50 kW's isn't super fast, right? Whoa, what a blast! What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon.